0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 37, 2 Kings chapter 23, the conclusion. I uh, hope that you're ready for a considerable Bible history lesson today. Because the last couple of chapters... 2nd Kings contains one of the most studied periods of Israelite history, certainly one of the most pertinent and fascinating for modern Christians and Jews to learn about. Now, if we were to give a name to this overriding theme of King Josiah's life and his determined purpose, it would have to be rediscovering the Torah. Since 2nd Kings chapter 21, when we first were introduced to King Josiah, Yoshiao. We have watched an exceptionally righteous king in action who the Lord favorably compared to King David, 2 Kings two two. He did what was right from Adonai's perspective, living entirely in the manner of David, his ancestor, and turning away neither to the right nor to the left. So as we continue our study of 2 Kings 23 today... Keep that context in mind and by the way how I pray that I and all of you will be welcomed into heaven with words expressing that same thought when we finish running our race. Now, Chapter 23 began with a lavish ceremony at the temple in Jerusalem in which the law of Moses was read to a mostly Judahite crowd consisting of priests and Levites, the king's royal court, elders, priests, common citizens. And following the reading we're told in verse 3 that all the people stood and they pledged themselves to keep the covenant. Now immediately thereafter a program of thoroughly ridding the Temple Mount, Jerusalem, all of Judah of idols and pagan worship practices was initiated by King Josiah's administration. Priests to the various false gods, mostly non-Levites, were killed. Other priests, Levites, who worshipped Jehovah, but at unauthorized high places, Bamot, They were essentially fired. Josiah didn't stop there. He next went into the former northern kingdom of Israel where there were small remnants of the ten tribes that had somehow escaped exile to Assyria many years earlier and he did the same thing. He also attempted to set himself up as king over that region with the idea that he would reunite all the 12 tribal districts and recreate a unified kingdom of Israel as it was under kings David and Solomon. But in that effort he did not succeed. And in hindsight we can see that it was because in God's master plan it was not yet time. The next thing King Josiah did is what we're going to examine today. So, open your Bibles to 2 Kings 23 and we're going to begin at verse 21. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that is page 431. 431. We're going to start reading at verse 21. The king issued this order to all the people. Observe Pesach, Passover, to Adonai your God as written in this scroll of the covenant. For Passover had not been so observed since the days when the judges ruled Israel, not during the times of any of the kings of Israel or of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Yosheel, this Pesach was observed to Adonai in Jerusalem. Josiah got rid of the mediums and of the people using spirit guides as well as the household gods, the idols, all the disgusting things spotted anywhere in Judah in Jerusalem. He did this in order to establish the words of the Torah written in the scroll that Hilkiah the priest had found in the house of Adonai. No previous king was like him because he turned to Adonai with all of his heart, all of his being, and with all of his power, in accordance with all that the Torah, uh, in accordance with all the Torah of Moses. Nor did any king like him arise afterwards. Nevertheless, Adonai did not turn away from his fiercely raging furious anger that burned against Judah because of all the things Manisha had done to provoke him. And Adonai said, just as I removed Israel, I will also remove Judah out of my sight. I will reject this city, which I chose, Yerushalayim, the house concerning which I said my name will be there. Other activities of Yoshiao and all of his accomplishments are recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah. Now, During this, his time, Pharaoh Nico, king of Egypt, went up towards the Euphrates River to attack the king of Asher, and King Josiah went out to oppose him. But at Megiddo, Pharaoh spotted Josiah and he killed him. His servants carried his dead body from Megiddo to Jerusalem in a chariot, and they buried him in his own tomb. The people of the land took Jehoiachaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him, made him king in his father's place. Yehoiachaz was 23 years old when he began his reign. He ruled for three months in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Yermiah, Jeremiah, from Libna. He did what was evil from Adonai's perspective, following the example of everything his ancestors had done. Pharaoh Necho imprisoned him at Rivla in the land of Hamat, so that he would not be able to rule in Jerusalem. He also imposed a penalty on the land of three and one quarter tons of silver and sixty-six pounds of gold. Then Pharaoh Necho made Eliachim, the son of Yoshiel the king of, uh, in place of Josiah his father and changed his name to Jehoiachim. He also carried Yehoiachaz off to Egypt where he died. Jehoiachim remitted the silver and gold to Pharaoh, but in order to pay the money that Pharaoh demanded, he had to levy a tax on the land. He taxed the people of the land, each according to his means to pay the silver and gold to Pharaoh Nico. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began his reign, and he ruled for 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zevedah, the daughter of Pedia from Rumah. He did what was evil from the perspective of Adonai, following the example of everything his ancestors had done. How fitting it was that the king would order that the Pesach feast would be the first one to be celebrated in this new reformed kingdom of Judah. Not only is Passover the first in the series of seven biblically ordained feasts but it celebrates the breaking of the yoke to sin and of de- of sin and of deprivation over God's people. When Israel was in Egypt the meaning of the Passover was self-evident. It was immediately observable because within hours of painting Lamb's blood On the doorposts of their homes, the Hebrews witnessed mass death as the Lord passed through Egypt, killing every firstborn male, human beings, and domestic livestock. But in a miraculous and merciful way, death passed over the faithful. For every Passover after that first one, the celebration was a commemoration of that bittersweet event. And now in Josiah's day, 700 years or more since that time, not just Passover but all the feasts had become all mixed up with pagan elements and and apparently had also become nearly irrelevant in the Promised Land. But Josiah determined that he was going to remedy that. And he ordered that all the people in his kingdom, including the remnant of the ten tribes living to the north of Judah, were to bring their Pesach offerings, come to Jerusalem to sacrifice. Now while Second Kings reports little more about it than it occurred in Josiah's 18th year on the throne and that the Passover had not been observed so scrupulously According to the Torah instructions since the days of the judges. Second Chronicles thirty five goes into more detail about it. Let's go there now. Go to Second Chronicles chapter thirty five. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page twelve twenty. <clears throat> Second Chronicles chapter 35 We'll read the first 19 verses. Yoshiao kept Pesach to Adonai in Jerusalem. They slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the first month. He assigned the Kohanim, the priests, to their posts. He encouraged them to perform the service to uh, perform the service of the house of Adonai. To the Levites, who were teaching all Israel and were holy for Adonai, he said, Put the holy ark in the house which Shlomo, the son of David, king of Israel, built. After this you'll not have to carry it again. Now serve Adonai, your God, and his people Israel. Organize yourselves by clans and duty divisions according to the arrangement written down by David, king of Israel, and Solomon, his son. Stand in the holy place according to the divisions of the clans of your kinsmen, Uh, the ordinary people with part of a clan of Levites serving each clan of Israel. Then slaughter the Passover lamb, consecrate yourselves, prepare what your kinsmen need, and act according to the word of Adonai given through Moses. Josiah gave the ordinary people to all who were present 30,000 lambs and kids from the flock, all of them for Passover offerings and 3,000 bulls. These were from the king's personal property. (coughs) Pardon me. Also, his leading men voluntarily gave to the people and to the uh, priests and to the Levites. Hilkiah, Zechariah, and Yechiel, the rulers of the house of God, gave the priests 2,600 lambs and kids and 300 oxen for Passover offerings. Conanyah, his brothers Shemaiah and Nataniel, and uh, Hashaviah, Yeel, and uh, Yozavad, the head Levite, gave the Levites 5,000 lambs and kids and 500 oxen for Passover offerings. So the service was prepared, and the priests stood at their posts, and the Levites worked in their divisions in keeping with the king's order, and they slaughtered the Passover lamb. And the priests splashed the blood which they removed, which they received from the Levites, and the Levites skinned and butchered them. They removed the portions to be burned in order to give them to the divisions of the clans of the ordinary people to present to Adonai as written in the scroll of Moses. They did the same with the oxen. They roasted the Passover lamb over fire according to the rule. And while they boiled the holy offerings in pots, kettles, and pans, and carried them quickly to all the ordinary people... Afterwards, they prepared food for themselves and for the priests. Because the priests, the descendants of Aaron, were busy till nightfall offering the fat and the portions to be burned up. And this is why the Levites prepared food both for themselves and for the priests, the descendants of Aaron. The singers, the sons of Asaph, were at their posts, as ordered by David. Asaph, Haman, and Yedutun, the king's seer, The gatekeepers were at every gate, and they did not need to leave their post because their brothers, the Levites, prepared food for them. Thus all the service of Adonai was prepared the same day for observing Passover and offering burnt offerings on the altar of Adonai in accordance with the order of King Josiah. The people of Israel who were present observed the Pesach at that time and the festival of Matzot for seven days. No Pesach like that had been kept in Israel since the days of Shmuel the prophet and none of the kings of Israel observed a Passover such as Josiah observed with the priests, the Levites, all of Judah, those of Israel who were present and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This Passover was observed in the 18th year of Josiah. The rabbis note, I love this, that one of the foundational principles of Passover is that it is kept in the springtime when the earth comes back to life following a long season of death and dormancy. Little could better characterize the spiritual condition of God's chosen people at this time than death and dead and dormant. This gives us another good illustration of just how Christ went to the cross on Passover in order to fulfill the highest meaning of it. He came as springtime to revitalize a dead and dying world with new life. An entire planet, not just Israel has been living in a spiritual state of death and dormancy since the moment Adam and Eve disobeyed the Lord's commandment and sin entered the world. And yet, a Passover has been provided for the taking for everyone who bends their knee to the Father and appropriates the blood of the Divine Lamb, Yeshua and how right and good and obedient it is for all believers to celebrate Passover annually. Not so much to remember Israel leaving Egypt, but rather to remember the moment that each of us painted the doorposts of our lives with Messiah's atoning blood. And so God has passed over us for the eternal death that all others, without exception, are going to suffer. Now, Second Chronicles 35, 1 tells us that Josiah's Passover was celebrated on the fourteenth day of the first month. This means that this Passover was celebrated on the correct biblically ordained day, the 14th day of Nisan. Now, Josiah was not the first king in Judah to try to righteously reinstitute the biblical feasts. King Hezekiah did so a century earlier, but something wasn't quite right about it. In Second Chronicles 30, 1-5, we read this. Then Hezekiah, Hezekiah, sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh summoning them to the house of Adonai in Jerusalem to keep the Passover to Adonai, the God of Israel. For the king, his officials, and the entire Jerusalem community had agreed to keep the Passover in the second month. They had not been able to observe it at the proper time because the priests hadn't consecrated themselves in sufficient number. Also, the people had not assembled in Jerusalem. The idea seemed right to the king and to the whole community. So they issued a decree that it should be proclaimed throughout all Israel, from Beersheba to Dan, that they should come to keep the Passover to Adonai, the God of Israel, at Jerusalem, for only a few had been observing it as prescribed. Well, we're told here that Hezekiah got together with all the people and they decided that they would hold Passover in the second month, Iyar, E-R, instead of the God-ordained month of Nisan, the first month. So while they had good intentions, in fact, they just picked for themselves when they wanted to observe the Passover. Now, I have little doubt that this was a political compromise between the northern and the southern kingdoms. We read in earlier lessons that King Jeroboam had instituted a religious festival that mimicked the seventh month feast of Sukkot, but he held it in the eighth month. And so moving Passover to the second month served a number of practical, logistic, and cultural realities. Now later in 2 Chronicles 30, we read that some of the remaining folks from the ten northern tribes decided that they would not go through the required purification rituals for Passover and in addition they turned the seven days of unleavened bread matzah they turned that observance into a 14 day party and yet we don't hear of the Lord necessarily condemning it, although There certainly is no divine commendation for it either. But this is why the author of 2 Kings can say that Josiah's Passover edict was the most Torah-observant Passover celebration since Samuel's time. Because by all accounts, every minute detail of the Torah's Pesach observance was scrupulously followed. We also see something else kind of interesting in Second Chronicles 35. In verse 3 it says this, To the Lev-a-im, Levites, who were teaching all Israel and were holy for Adonai, he said, Put the holy ark in the house which Shlomo, Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, built, and after this you won't have to carry it again. Hmm. In other words, the ark of the covenant wasn't at its usual place in the holy of holies but rather it had to be carried back in upon the shoulders of the levites in time for passover now no doubt this had something to do with the refurbishment of the temple because it was at this it was in this same year that Passover was being celebrated, Josiah's 18th year in power, that Josiah had also ordered the temple to be repaired. So apparently the Ark had been moved to a temporary location so that the Holy of Holies could be entered and, and refurbished. Well, back to 2 Kings 23. Verse 24 basically sums up everything that Malek Yoshe'el, King Josiah did to cleanse Judah and the northern kingdom of idols and of of heathen shrines. And the key phrase is that he did it not with whatever seemed right to him. That's a phrase we get all the time for so many of the other kings. They did what was right in their own eyes. He didn't do it in accordance with whatever was the current religious philosophy or the sense of political correctness, but rather it was done, we're told, in order to establish the words of the Torah. <laughs> oh, that such a revival would sweep through Christ church on earth today, that we'd want to do that. But instead, modern era revivals usually revolve around getting more people to come to church or to champion a new social cause or to embark on some new doctrine or trend. Yet Josiah saw that whatever small chance there might have been to reform the hearts of his people was bound up in learning God's actual word and in doing it. But as Jeremiah and Zephaniah and Habakkuk all report, this was a nation of people devoid of shame. Their hearts were so hardened, their desires were so corrupt, that no amount of listening to Moses' words or chastening by God's prophets or mechanical obedience to rituals, laws and commandments or participating in biblical feats, none of this was going to change them. Even so, so Josiah was exactly right to do what he did. All any human leader can do is present the people with the divine truth and urge them to follow it. What people decide to do is up to them. Therefore, despite the fact that other than for some outward window dressing... There was no real substantive interchange within Judah. But the Lord highly praised Yoshio for his personal dedication, absolute faithfulness, and his tireless efforts. In 2 Kings 23.25 we read this, No previous king was like him because he turned to Adonai with all of his heart, all of his being, all of his power, in accordance with all the Torah of Moses, nor did any king like him arise afterwards. Now, no doubt, Josiah had his days of deep disappointment and discouragement. He was too wise not to suspect that all wasn't well within his kingdom, despite all of his heroic efforts. And let this be the model for all who want to be ministers her teachers, elders, leaders of any kind within the body of Messiah. Our job, your job, will always be to present the truth. But how many or how few among the congregation who sincerely accept it, who change their lives because of it, This is not to be used by us as a measure of our success or of our failure. As with Josiah, now hear me on this, please. The only measure the Lord ever uses is faithfulness and obedience towards Him in the task that we've been assigned. That's the measure. We're only human. So it can be quite discouraging when the results aren't what we hoped and prayed for. In fact, that thought leads us right back to 2 Kings chapter 22 when the last words of that chapter make it clear that indeed King Josiah will, despite his faithfulness, despite all of his hard work, fail to affect a saving heart change in the people of Judah. But it's okay, because you see, that's not his responsibility. 2 Kings 22.18-20 But you are to tell the king of Judah, who sent you to consult Adonai, that Adonai the God of Israel also says this, In regard to the words you have heard, because your heart was tender because you humbled yourself before Adonai when you heard what I said against this place and its inhabitants, that they would become an object of astonishment and cursing. And you have torn your clothes, you have cried before me, I have also heard you, says Adonai. Therefore I will gather you to your ancestors. You will go to your grave in peace. Your eyes will not see all the calamity I am going to bring on this place. Look at verses 26 and 27. You know, although it just seems to be mixed in with all the others, just put there, it seems like, to add more bits and pieces of information, in fact, they are the words that tell us that the defining moment for the existence of Judah had arrived. Yehovah saw all the beautification of the temple, the frantic removal of pagan shrines and altars, the excited people congregating together to hear His word from the Torah and their unity in saying Amen to it. He observed with pleasure the smashing of idols, of the Asherah poles, and still... He came to the judgment that nothing of a spiritual substance had changed for the better within the people of Judah. God had even provided Israel with a leader that was literally on par with the nearly incomparable King David. And still, and still the people's hearts and minds remained perverted and far from God. Thus, first 27 pronounces the final devastating verdict for Judah. 2 Kings 23.27 Adonai said, Just as I removed Israel, I will also remove Judah from out of my sight. I will reject this city which I chose, Jerusalem, and the house concerning which I said, My name will be there. The ball game was over. All that remained was for the many players that the Lord had prepared for their various roles in removing Judah from the land to act upon the Lord's mysterious, undetectable, and irresistible unction within them. But something else remained undone as well. The fulfillment of God's promise To righteous king Josiah that he would not be alive to witness the horrific end to all he had dedicated his life to preventing. Thus to complete the final item on God's checklist before Judah is exiled to Babylon the Lord as he typically does employs another Gentile nation to do his bidding. And Suddenly, up pops Egypt. Now, in reality, even though the Bible's almost silent on the subject, Egypt had been a prominent player on the world stage again and had great interest in controlling everything from the Sinai to the Euphrates River, from here all the way up to here. Let me see if I can sum up rather briefly what had transpired around the region during Josiah's time on the throne because it has everything to do with setting up Babylon as the next world superpower and enabling them to act as God's hammer of justice upon Judah. Now as I've taught you on numerous occasions, These great Biblical events don't happen in a vacuum. The decisions and actions of kings and kingdoms had reasons for them, supported by agendas and circumstances. Well, it's around 610 BC and once mighty Assyria has been in a serious decline for at least two decades. Now, Instead of being an unconquerable power, Assyria is now in a fight for its very existence. Babylon has arisen from centuries of near dormancy from being little more than a vassal state of Assyria to a regional power player. And they were a serious threat to Assyria's empire. Egypt was also a powerful nation with a well-equipped army, a growing navy, since their nation bordered on the Red Sea to the east, here's Egypt, Red Sea to the east and the Mediterranean Sea to the north they had become a a seafaring nation they were able seafarers, uh, seafarers they had made treaties with many nations out into the Mediterranean, all along the coast who were also seafaring Thus, Egypt had a substantial mercenary force that employed soldiers who were comfortable on the land and the sea. But this also led to a natural interest in their obtaining as much seacoast territory along the beaches of Philistia and the Promised Land and all the way up to Lebanon as they could possibly get hold of. Well, Nico too was the new pharaoh and his seafaring interests led him to do something astounding. I bet you never heard about this. He began a canal project to connect the Red Sea to the Mediterranean. That's right. He actually set about to build the first Suez Canal. Ancient records show he nearly succeeded. More than 120,000 laborers died trying. Nico II was the Pharaoh of Egypt at the same time that Nabopolisar was the king of Babylon. They were rivals. They both hoped one day to take over the empire that Assyria had established, but now was in the process of losing. For the moment, however, Egypt was an ally of sin kun king of Assyria, with Nabopolassar's Babylon, however, was at war with Assyria, and therefore also with Egypt. Well, just a few years before this, Nabopolassar led an expeditionary force along... up maps down, did not it, along the Euphrates River in hopes of capturing one by one towns and cities that were up to now loyal to Assyria. By now the kingdom of the Medes had aspirations of regional power and they allied themselves with Babylon to finish taking down Assyria. Together they marched to what had been the Assyrian stronghold of Haran. They they conquered it, they forced the Assyrians to retreat northward to Carchemish. And in a couple more years, the Babylonian and Mede forces made a move to take Carchemish, which if successful, would signal the end of Assyrian dominance and make Babylon essentially the undisputed ruler of all of Mesopotamia. With that as a background, let's pick up at Second Chronicles 35, verse 20. We had just finished at 19. So just go back to page 1221. We're going to read the last part of Second Chronicles 35 starting at verse 20. After all of this, and after Yoshio had restored the house, Necho, king of Egypt, went up to attack Carchemish by the Euphrates River. King Josiah went out to oppose him, but Necho sent envoys to him with this message. Do I have a conflict with you, king of Judah? No. I'm not coming to attack you, but to attack the dynasty with whom I'm an war." God has ordered to speed me along, so don 't meddle with God, who is with me, so that he won 't destroy you. nevertheless, Yoshiao was determined to go after him. He disguised himself in order to fight against him and wouldn 't listen to what Nico said, which was from the mouth of God. Then he went to fight in the Megiddo Valley, their archers shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servants. Take me away because I'm badly wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot, transferred him to the second chariot, and brought him to Jerusalem. But he died, and he was buried in the tombs of his ancestors. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned Josiah. Jeremiah composed a lament for Josiah, and all the men and women singers have sung of Josiah in their laments until this day. They made singing them a law in Israel and they are recorded in the laments. Other activities of Josiah and of all his good deeds in keeping with what is written in the Torah of Adonai, also his accomplishments from beginning to end are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel and Judah. <clears throat> so, here we find Pharaoh Necho was marching His army northward from Egypt along this highway that is usually called the Via Maris. The same one, by the way, that the Lord told Moses to avoid in their exodus. A little above Ashdod, he cut inland towards the Jezreel Valley where he planned then on continuing up northward all the way up to help his ally Assyria defend Carchemish from the Babylonians. The battlefield he marched through, through the Jezreel Valley, in the end times is called Armageddon. Well now for some unnamed reason, King Josiah of Judah inserted himself into this equation and he decided that he was going to try to halt Egypt's progress through the promised land. Now verse 21 has Nico sending envoys to Yoshiao asking him why he wanted to do battle with Egypt since Egypt had no intention of doing any more than marching through Judah and then through the former northern kingdom territory en route to Carchemish. And Nico went so far as to say he had no bone to pick with Judah. He said bluntly that his enemy was in Carchemish. And then he began telling Josiah that God, Elohim, wouldn't want Josiah to impede Nico. And in fact, God, Elohim, was on Nico's side. Now there's been lots of academic conjecture regarding this short passage to explain, first, why Josiah decided to take on Nico, And second, was this God reference meant to point to Israel's God or to Egypt's God? Now I think both matters are actually fairly easily resolved. Let's start with the second question first. I'm in complete agreement with Keel and Deleach that the term God, here Elohim, is obviously referring to Yehoveh, God of Israel. Pharaoh didn't have a God. Rather, the Egyptians had many gods. So Niko was necessarily meaning Israel's God. Even so, we don 't necessarily have to take the view that some commentators do that Jehovah indeed spoke to Nico because Nico said he did and told him that he was on his side and he should march through the promised land it 's almost unimaginable that a prophet of Jehovah would take an oracle to Nico, guaranteeing him safe passage and further, there really isn 't a hint of that except for some strange translations. And we have one in the complete Jewish Bible that kind of would sound that way. Rather, this is just one king trying to get the upper hand on the other king and doing what he could in a largely diplomatic effort to avoid an unnecessary conflict. Well, Nico wasn't so bold as to actually call Israel's God by his formal name, Yudhevave, Yehovah which indeed might have infuriated the pious Josiah. He merely said Elohim which is a more or less generic term for God or for any God for that matter. Now for the issue of why Josiah decided to try and stop Nico. Judah had a problem. They had a problem. Kind of a big problem. Did they want Egypt, Assyria, or Babylon to dominate the region. Because pragmatically, they had no ability to defeat any of those forces. In other words, in a choice of nothing but bad options, which one was the least worst? His calculation was that it was better to allow Egypt to bolster Assyria and thus permit the two of them together to dominate the region. It was well known that Egypt was going to want to control the area where Judah was located, especially the coastal areas for all the reasons I mentioned earlier. Assyria was more interested in controlling Mesopotamia because of the two important rivers up there, the Tigris and the Euphrates. And what Babylon, together with the Medes, would want is almost identical with Assyria's interests except it seems that Josiah's calculation was that a coalition of Babylon and, and, and uh, Media were, in the end, the best of all the bad options. Now perhaps it was due to Huldah's prophecy of doom for Judah in which Judah would suffer what. Israel suffered. Now think about this. They would have thought they were going to be exiled to Assyria because Assyria was the dominant power. Well, so Josiah figured it would of course be Assyria where Judah was going. Where else would it be? So maybe the thing for him to do was to contribute into weakening Assyria by helping Babylon win at Carchemish making Judah's experience of exile not only less onerous eh, but maybe even less likely. In any case, King Josiah shunned Nico's warning and he attacked, foolishly some might argue he attacked the Egyptian forces at Megiddo. There he was shot by an Egyptian archer and he was taken back to Jerusalem, mortally wounded. 2 Kings 23, 29, and 30 says that Josiah was shot and killed at Megiddo, where he died, and then his corpse was transported back to Jerusalem. Likely it was that he died on the way back to Jerusalem from Megiddo. Thus, this is how God fulfilled his promise that Josiah would not witness Judah exiled from the land. Now, imagine this is not what Josiah had in mind when he was told that he would die in Shalom, that he would rest with his ancestors. I think he probably envisioned dying in bed a very old man. But here's a good case study as to why we must be very cautious in imagining that we have a good handle on how some of the remaining unfulfilled biblical prophecies might just play out. Too often, those who write about these prophecies in our day take the rosiest scenario. They assume that must be how it's all going to go. So when you think about the end times prophecies, be a little bit careful what you wish for. The people of the land, the Am Eretz, a highly influential religious and social movement within Judah, followed the typical succession protocol and they had the political power to elevate Josiah's son Jehoiachaz to the throne to replace his deceased father. Yehoiachaz first went by the name Shalom, he was a young man who was 23 years old and he managed to rule for only three months. And the author of Second Kings characterizes him as totally different from his father. And he was just another in a long line of wicked kings. It seems that because Josiah attacked Nico's army and no doubt wounded it, the angry Nico responded by subjugating Judah. And making them a vassal to Egypt, the very thing Josiah feared. Nico obviously wanted his own man on Judah's throne, so he deposed Jehoiachaz, who had been chosen by the Amherets, and he imprisoned him in a place called Riblah. Well, the Pharaoh chose another indifferent son of Josiah, whose name was Eliakim, to be the new vassal king over Judah. And as was a customary show of regal superiority, Nico changed Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim. And he was apparently content to rule under Nico, and he remained on Judah's throne for 11 years, but as another bad king. There would be nothing but bad kings the last few remaining years before Judah was hauled off to Babylon. Now, we're told that Jehoiakim consented to send large sums of gold and silver to Nico. large enough that he had to impose a special tax upon the people of Judah just to pay for it. Well, But during Jehoiakim's reign, there was a dramatic shift of power in the region. He remained a vassal under Egypt from 609 to 605 BC, but then Babylon's power came into full bloom, and Egypt was repulsed and it was pushed back all the way to the Sinai. It happened when Egypt and Assyria joined together and attempted to take Haran back from Babylon, and they were thoroughly trounced. This was the moment that we can point to when Babylon became the new dominating power of the Middle East and of the Asian continent, and the Assyrian Empire came to an end. A great deal happened in 605 BC. Nabopolassar, the Babylonian king, died, and he was succeeded by the infamous king Nebuchadnezzar. It was he who would almost immediately push Egypt out of Judah, push them all out of the coastal plains all the way back to the Sinai. So after four years as a vassal to Egypt, now the next three years, Jehoiakim became a vassal to Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And this new arrangement never settled very well with the king of Judah. After all, he had been brought to power by Pharaoh Nico, and he had a pretty comfortable arrangement with Egypt. Overnight, with Babylon in control the tribute amount was upped and the conditions worsened he rebelled bad move King Nebuchadnezzar immediately sent his battle-hardened troops here called Chaldeans along with the troops of other conquered kingdoms specifically mentioned were Aram, uh, Moab and Ammon against Judah in reprisal. It is interesting that we're told in 2nd Kings 24, which we'll get into next time, in verses 2 and 3, that this attack upon Judah by Nebuchadnezzar was entirely the doing of Jehovah. He intended for it to happen. He made it happen because he wanted to inflict major harm to Judah as but the beginning of his wrath against them. And next week, we're going to talk about all this in some detail because it exposes a side to God and how he operates that most Christians either cringe at or simply deny. And they say God changed. He doesn't operate like this any longer.